The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Morning, church. How's everybody doing? Hey, grab your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Philippians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand up nice and high, and one of these gentlemen will make sure that you get one. Um, I have a, uh, uh, just a couple of announcements, and then uh, I want to dive right into this because um, um, this is a big topic today. Um, it, it's something that we need to get as much time and opportunity to really walk through as we can because it's a, a huge subject um, that, I, that I think is going to speak to the hearts of a lot of us, um, and mainly I'm going to be preaching to me. I'll be quite honest. I'll explain that in a bit. But um, um, anyway, Philippians chapter 4 is where we'll be, and we'll also be at Matthew chapter 6 at one point if uh, any of you guys want to plan ahead, but we'll have that on the, on the screens as well. Um, first announcement is this. Um, we, we didn't even celebrate that this year, but uh, at the end of June this year, Heritage turned 8. I don't know if you guys know that or not. We didn't talk about that at all. Yeah, but it's okay because eight's one of those you're just like, whatever. You know what I mean? Like you get to a point where you can only celebrate certain ones. Like you, it goes by fives. You know what I mean? 10, 15, 20, 25. Like you, you hit the numbers and those matter. Eight's kind of like, eh, whatever. So, um, but we just, we turned eight. And here's, here's something that um, uh, we have fought for eight years to keep everybody together. And we have a, everybody's going, uh-oh. We have a big room, and, and here's what we're wrestling with right now. We have been dealing with, wrestling with issues regarding growth that aren't always very comfortable. Um, I, I was literally talking to someone not long ago because of some different, uh, either interpersonal difficulties and different things that had happened that might not have been issues when we were a church of 200 or 300, but when you're pushing seven and 800 on a given Sunday, it begins to get really, really difficult. And I was telling someone up at seminary this week, man, I, I almost long for the days when we were so small again. Like it, the things were easy and, and I could be up here preaching and my wife could later say, hey, was so-and-so at church? And I'd be like, yep, they were sitting right over there. Now she's like, was so-and-so at church? And I'm like, I, no clue. You guys just, fist. in the back, you guys are totally anonymous to me right now. All of you guys. That could be that I'm becoming old. And he's like, yes. No. Um, it could be that I'm getting old, my eyes are failing. But, but I'm just kind of, we've been wrestling with that for a long time. But we haven't wanted to make the switch to two services, me in particular, because I remember being a children's pastor and what a nightmare that was. I can remember being at a church and having the pastor say, hey, we're going to two services or we're going to three services or we're going to actually five services at one point at the church I was at. And I remember like, I don't even have the volunteers for two. Now we're going to have five. But not long ago, Pastor Brent, our children's pastor here at the church came up to me and he said, dude, we, can we talk about making this jump? Because we're deal dealing with chaotic levels in the, in the, especially in the fall and spring when everyone's here, we're not traveling as much. Just it's becoming a real challenge. But it was it was even more than that. That was my sign that like yeah, it's time to start looking at this. The the main thing honestly is um, that has really hit me. Two things. Number one, if you've never done this before, people in the back, you need to know this. Your experience at church back there is completely different than everyone's experience up here. And what I mean by that is this, as we've grown and put more and more rows out, 
you, it's so easy to become more and more and more disconnected from the things that are going on up here. And so, honestly, I challenge you to do this in the weeks ahead. Go sit in the back during worship and then come to the front about halfway through. And you'll feel like you're almost in two separate churches. It's just, it's completely different. You're just so far back. It just physically, you feel detached from a lot of things. And so we were wrestling with that, wrestling with kids' wings numbers. But, but here's the reason that we're going to have to make a change coming up this fall. As we grow, we fundamentally want to make sure that um, community and relationships and all those things are made as, as humanly possible as, as we can. And as the church has grown, what we're realizing is this, we need to constantly always fight to make big small. Does that make sense? Like to take something that's big and try to make it still somehow feel smaller so that we can develop community or intimacy and those sorts of things. And the honest truth is this, that we have good relationships with people and we can talk. When you walk into a room this big with this many people and watch and see, summer hides growth. So when fall comes and everybody comes back to church, it'll push even further back. You start to feel just anonymous and random and this just this sea of vacuous people or there's vacuous room full of people that's not right anyway but um and 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 our concern for that isn't just those of us who already know each other though that strains relationships because it's harder to see one another and all those things but when new people are looking for a church family to be a part of they can come into a room like this and instantly feel like well this is already too much for me so we've wrestled with this for a really long time, but just want to let you know that we, we've, we've made the decision to just go ahead, bite the bullet, and make the jump. The first weekend of October, we're going to go to two services. We're going to get rid of all that stuff in the back. We're going to drop that curtain, and we're going to do two services right here in this kind of format. We're going to start out with 9 a.m. and 11 a.m., and we'll see how that goes. Everybody in the world has an opinion on what times those should be, but we're, we're not going to be ashamed to move it if we need to, to try to get um, balanced services. You don't want that one awkward service that nobody's at and then that one huge service that everyone's at, um, not, not just because the services feel weird, but because it doesn't accomplish what we need it to do in the kids' wing as well. We want to try to balance some of those things out. So for those of you that are football fans, I have good news for you. You're going to get home an hour early if you come at nine. You get to catch your game. Amen? There's nothing wrong with that. You can say amen. Come on now. God's common graces. At least you came to church, right? Um, but anyway, I just w- wanted to, if you would just pray for us as we're making the transitions on that. We've been planning some of this for a while, trying to, to look at how we're going to navigate volunteers. Um, we're also, there's a whole lot that'll be a part of that. You'll see uh, on that day, we're creating kind of a uh, um, uh, assimilation team, if you will, at the church so that we can f- uh, uh, kind of foster community and interaction between the two services and also have teams of people that are there to help people and new people navigate things. So there's a lot of different opportunities and there's a lot of those shifts coming up and it'll start the first week in October. Um, the reason we're telling you now is um, also because there's going to be a lot lot more opportunities and needs for people to serve in different areas. So for some people, it could be really good, like serve in one service, attend the next one, whatever the case may be. I know other people that they're like, man, I would like to come once a month and serve for both services, and then I don't have to do anything else the rest of the month, or whatever whatever it is, we're going to have needs. We're going to have a lot of holes. And so what we're going to be doing is on September 10th, 
Yes, September 10th, um, we're going to have a kind of a volunteer, all-volunteer training. Not just new volunteer, but all-volunteer training. And we're going to all get together over at the Hub that morning. We're going to have some worship together, almost like a big pep rally. The whole family gathered together, going to hang out with one another, have some food, some worship. And then we're going to separate out into different areas per team. So the doorkeepers will go meet, the children's ministry people will go meet, there'll be all these different teams, we're going to do some kind of training, talk about the transitions, how things are going to look, and it's going to be a really, I actually think we're going to do everything we can to make it a really fun, and also not take up your entire day. So that's going to be on September 10th, Saturday, from 10 a.m. to 12.30 with lunch provided and child care provided uh, for those who, uh, who need that. So um, if you could just be praying for us in all that as we're working through all these things and pray that um, we've really fought this because we value having everyone together, but, but we're really wrestling with the fact that as a church grows, community gets more difficult. And you have to do things to be more intentional. Um, and we just believe that this is kind of where heritage is. Does that make sense? Can you give me an amen if you are? Yeah? All right, so just be praying for us on that. If you have problems with that, if that upsets you, I, I, I'm really sorry, but Aaron Beamish would be happy to address any of your fears or concerns. Aaron at heritagefellowship.com. That's A-A-R-O-N at heritagefellowship.net. I'm sorry, dot net. That number again is Aaron at heritagefellowship.net. Uh, do me a favor, would you? If you're in Philippians chapter 4, let's stand in honor of the word of God. And we're going to read Philippians 4, verses 2 through 7. This is, I almost said this is the last time I'm going to make you stand, but it's actually not. So I won't say that. So, but we're going to read Philippians 4, verses 2 through 7 together. Let's read. And I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, are you serious? You've had two weeks. All right, back to verse seven. Let's try this again. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. God, we thank you so much for your word. We stand in awe and in reverence of your truth. And God, we ask now that as we open this passage up, Lord, that you would speak to the heart of your people. Lord, there is nothing I could do in and of myself that would do this church one ounce of good. But Lord, if your spirit should move this morning, we might become more like you, Lord. So we beg of you, spirit, speak. Open hearts, open minds, remove barriers, strongholds. Lord, help us to see you for who you are. And Lord, with this topic in particular that we're talking about this morning, I pray that you would heal people that are in bondage that you would set captives free. So Lord, we ask that you would just speak through your inadequate servant, Lord, 
There's no man worthy of your glory, your gospel, and your word. But Lord, we're here because we believe in you. We're here because we have been saved by you. And we ask now, Lord, that your word would speak even through the likes of me, that you might equip your church. So Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my King, my rock, my redeemer. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Philippians chapter four is where we are. Philippians chapter 4 is where we are, but the theme of this particular part of Philippians is actually found in Philippians chapter 1. There's a verse in Philippians 1 where Paul says this, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The idea is this, Paul writing to a church he had planted years earlier is encouraging this church, encouraging his people and he's encouraging them to walk in a manner that makes the gospel look as glorious as it is. He wants their lives to frame the gospel and display the gospel of Jesus Christ as being valuable. This is what he's doing. He's talked with them about their identity and the things that the Lord has done, but he's encouraging them now. Now, look, as you move forward, encouraging this church to kind of grow up, and Paul is so focused on this, the glory of the gospel, the spread of the gospel. He even talks in chapter one. Remember, where's Paul writing? Prison. Paul is in prison. And he knows that they know that he's in prison, and so he writes to them to say, hey, I, I know that you know about this, and I'm writing to you concerning what's going on with me. But then when he talks about what's going on with him, he doesn't really talk about prison at all. Like, he doesn't really talk about, yeah, it's, it's okay, it's really rough here, it's cold, they don't feed me very good. Like, he doesn't do any of the things that we would do, right? Instead, he's like, yeah, I know you're in prison, I want to let you know what's happening. The gospel's still going. Like he is laser focused on the reality of the gospel and his whole life is about pushing, serving Jesus by spreading the gospel as far and wide as he can. And he's encouraging this young church to grow to that same emphasis. And so what we've seen so far as we've been going through Philippians is that a life worthy of the gospel, a life that displays or showcases the value and the beauty of the gospel as it should be, um, well, it looks a, a few different ways. Number one, it's a humble life we've seen. As he talks about how Christ himself did not esteem his position in glory, but humbled himself to the form of a servant coming to serve and save the likes of you and I. And he said, hey, a life worthy of the gospel is a humble life that esteems others better than themselves and models that same kind of humility. And along with that, a life worthy of the gospel is a serving life. Just as Christ came to serve and save us, and, and he points out other people like Timothy who are serving them, he says, hey, serve one another. Esteem others as better than yourselves. Don't just look after your own needs, but the needs of others. As you serve one another, you're showcasing the importance and the beauty and the grandeur of the gospel. He talks about, as we spent a lot of time last week on, a pursuing life. That, that a person who is showcasing the gospel of Jesus Christ to be valuable is someone who is constantly pursuing Christ. And Paul, who's known Jesus for 30 years at this point, is still going, 
I'm not, I'm not there yet. I'm striving. I'm forgetting the things behind. It's not a person who stands on their own credentials, but it's someone who's pursuing Christ and upholding him and his ultimate value as the only thing in life that is worth pursuing and dedicating ourselves to. And then finally, a grounded life. That, that we are standing and grounded on the scriptures, that we are unified with one another, locked arms, standing firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so to this end, Paul writes in verse 2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul, as he's going down this road, he's entreating, he's inviting these two women, pleading with these two women, hey, get along. There's so many jokes here. And I'm not doing any of them because I'm married to a woman. But I will say this. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this. We hit this really hard in Corinthians. We hit this hard in Ephesians, and we're going to hit this hard now. Let, let, me, let, me, let me be really honest with you about something, and, and maybe for some of you really blunt for something that you might be dealing with even right now. A life lived worthy of the gospel finds ways to have agreement in the Lord with one another within the church. You just, you just have to. Jesus commands us to love our enemies. How much more are we required, should we want to love those that are within the family of God? When we are aware of how much Christ has forgiven us of, when we're aware of the realities of the gospel, the things that we have done to sin and offend God, and yet he would humble himself to come and serve us, not to, not to go, now say where you were wrong and point out every folly, but he would humble himself to come to the cross to die for our sins that he might reconcile our relationship back to him. That's the gospel we have to model. But too often, people outside the church see the behavior going on inside the church and it's just as divisive or more. There's nothing attractive to it. Christian, let me put it this way. Heritage family, listen to me. You must agree with your brother. Now, agree in what? <laughs> in the Lord. Now, we don't have to agree on everything. R right now, man, we are so pulled as a society to polarize over everything. And it's happening big time in the area of politics right now in this particular day. And, and we are pulled into this thing where we, we have to separate over these things. And those people are stupid and they're idiots if they don't believe like me. And the reality is this, if this year more than any year, it's complicated. But no matter what it is going on out there, we are required and commanded as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ to go to one another and to agree in the Lord. Even if you can't find agreement on the thing that you're disagreeing with, you can agree in Christ. You can humble yourself. It's interesting he puts that after the humility part. Because what tends to happen is when we get offended or, or we have a disagreement with someone else, we tend to separate. This is just what we do now. And it's really easy now, right? Unfriend, unfollow, done, clean, no mess. That's what we do. But, it, but even in the church, it's the same thing. It's one of the curses of the fact that we have so many churches in our valley. It's really easy. If we have a disagreement, we can just bounce. 
There's other churches all over the place. We'll just go somewhere else. We never have to deal with it. We never have to, to deal with the abrasive, awkward conversations or any of those things. But you know what happens? When brothers come together, iron sharpens iron. And when you're never working those things out, you're going to stay dull for the rest of your life. You will not grow up and mature into the grace and gospel glorifying person of God that he's designed you to be if you can't humble yourself and find agreement in the Lord even if you can't find agreement over the thing you're disagreeing over. Our agreement is not based on the fact that we can believe everything the same regarding every area of life. We have unity here because we are of Jesus Christ. And when we understand that he's calling us to live a model that esteems others than better, as better than ourselves, then what we have to do is, as Jesus taught elsewhere, the idea of the speck and the log, remember? How can you remove the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own? The problem is, is that we think we have the speck and they have the log. But you've got to flip that, man. I don't care if you think the person that you're having an issue with is 99% wrong and you're 1%. You've got to make your one 99 and even the smallest things, when we look at them close enough, can block vision. But the idea is we have to go to one another willing to lay ourselves down, not win our fight. And if we go to one another and we have these prideful issues with one another where they've wounded me and I deserve to be a pot, they should grovel, those sorts of things, then you are missing out on what God has called us to live with regards to the unity of the gospel that would esteem others as better than us. That, that would humble ourselves for the sake of the other, that would be willing to lay our own pride aside for the sake of the other person. I'm telling you, this happens all the time. All the time. I found out yesterday, someone that I'm not in fellowship anymore, didn't even know that I wasn't in fellowship with them anymore. Apparently they're upset with me and I, I didn't even know. Brother and sister, you, it, you got to work it out. Remember like some of you, brothers and sisters especially, Remember when like you were disagreeing, did mom ever say, you go to your room and the two of you better work it out and do not come out until you're done? Remember that? Can I tell you this? Going to the communion table, going to the altar, bringing your gifts before the Lord without working out issues that you have between your two brothers is something that Jesus warns us against. Don't do it, church. Don't let your pride get in the way of relationship. And look, if we as a church are going to stand in the face of the kind of opposition that's growing in the world around us, we have to be unified. But we don't unify around politics. We don't unify around sports teams. We don't unify around opinions or any of those things. We are unified around the person of Jesus Christ. And no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter what your opinions are, you can find unity if you keep your eyes on Jesus the whole time. Nothing else matters after that. And when I'm looking at me, I got all sorts of things to worry about and get concerned with. But when I'm just looking at Jesus, it's just funny how just nothing else matters. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Christian, he has forgiven you of an immense amount of sin, and he has humbled himself for that. Whoever it is you're thinking of right now in your head, fix it. Don't go to win. Don't go to convince. Humble yourself and go to reconcile in the name of Jesus. Amen? But that's not what we're here to talk about today. I have to do that just because I don't want to do injustice to the text and skip over something. 
Let me tell you what I'm preaching to myself about today. Look at the next text. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The idea here is this. Paul's in prison. Paul's in jail. And he's stressing, in light of the fact that he's in jail, he's stressing to this church that he wants to see grow in Christian maturity. He's stressing to them a joy that is not based in circumstance. Because he's preparing them for difficulties that are going to come. But he's telling them, but you're going to rejoice anyway. Always. And again, I say rejoice. What he's saying here is this. Heritage, listen. Heritage, rejoice in the Lord. Let your gentleness, your reasonableness be known to all men. When that opposition comes, you're not flying off the handle. You're not getting all reactionary. You're in control. You're gentle. You're gospel motivated. You're rejoicing. You're not flying off the handle and losing your mind every time something comes at you. Heritage, as things get hard in life, rejoice. This is the heart of Paul. And he says it twice. And he says it in such a way to make sure they don't think he had a typo. He's like, hey, rejoice in the Lord always. Hey, again, I say, rejoice. You know why I think he does that? Because I think he's anticipating what their reaction would be. As they're understanding their leader is in jail, as oppositions are mounting around them, my guess is a lot of people are reading this text with a lot of nervousness. And they're being told, rejoice in the Lord always. What would your reaction to that be? What did he say? Stand together, unity, I get that. That'll help us fight the battles, I get all that. Rejoice? Always? Did he really say that? Again, I say rejoice. I guess he did, he said it twice, I guess so. Church, Paul says, when difficulties come, rejoice. And and in case you missed it, let me say it again. Rejoice. Now, do you know That God doesn't just want us as we deal with difficulties in life to just like endure, not to just merely persevere, not even to keep the faith strong as we go through difficulties, but he calls us to rejoice in every difficulty, all of them, always. Now, just out of curiosity, how many people grew up in church? Raise your hand, would you? So my guess is, you can put your hands down, my guess is most of you at some time or another looked at these sorts of things the way I did as the most cheesy, fake, plastic, weird, Christianese kind of thing you've ever seen in your life. And amen for anyone that's ever felt that before. Two people, whatever, chickens. They're just afraid. They're just afraid they don't want to be judged, whatever. Too many times in my life, as I've been going through different difficulties or whatever, if someone had come to me and said, hey, Jeff, just rejoice in the Lord always, my honest answer, if I were to let it out, would have been, I can't. I'm scared. But I can't say that. Oh, couldn't say, especially growing up where I did. You can't do that. You can't admit that you have fears, worries, anxieties, those things. Those are, those are sins. And so I would go to church and I'd watch this polished happy Christianity around me all the time that just seems to just walk on clouds 24-7, Ned Flanders-like kind of fake Christianity. When life gives you lemons, we'll make lemonade and sell it at the church potluck. You know, just that kind of like, I'm coming to church, and there's all these happy people all around, and I'd have things maybe that I'm dealing with or struggling with inside me, but I couldn't say anything, and it would cause me at many times to feel like a subpar Christian. Does that make sense? I mean, these guys have figured it out. 
and I'm not there yet. But one day I'll grow, and as I, I, I'll get there one day, well, now I'm a pastor, whatever that means. And I'll, I would echo Paul's words. I'm, I have not yet obtained it. I have not yet obtained this. I told you guys a couple of weeks ago that there's rarely ever a time that I've ever been preaching to you on Sunday that I wasn't preaching it to myself on Saturday night, and this has never been more true. This has never been more true. Now, growing up, fears, anxieties, things like that, when I was a kid, especially a little boy in the South, growing up, like, you, you would never admit fears because you're just a sissy, right? Are you afraid? You big chicken? Yella? I don't think we actually use yellow, but somehow we always have that word still. I'm afraid, and look, some fears are worthy of a little bit of laughter and silliness. I mean, they just are. I discovered yesterday some phobias that actually exist that would blow your mind. I'm talking like not something someone made up. A clinically diagnosed, this is an official fear people struggle with kind of phobias. Let me give you a few examples. These are great. Here's the first one. Cowlrophobia. You know what that is? It's the fear of clowns. That is a medically diagnosed condition. Some of you, I get, clowns are freaky. I would never go to the doctor because I was afraid of clowns, but clowns are freaky. How about this next one? And I'm going to have, I'm going to struggle pronouncing this. Archibutyrophobia. You know what that is? That is the fear of peanut butter. Specifically, it's the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. That means people have gone to a doctor struggling with fear that has affected their life negatively of peanut butter sticking to the roof of their mouth. How about this? This is my favorite one, I think. Dutch phobia. This is, yeah, the fear of Dutch people. (laughs) That's real, apparently. I mean, hey, those wooden shoes are creepy. I guess these guys go to human being. Nobody? (laughs) Dutch bros, nobody? Gosh. Sorry, Aaron. Anyway, um, how about this one? Geliophobia. Fear of laughter, which is not something you have to worry about after that last joke, apparently. Here's one. Dine, I don't know. It's that word. It's the fear of dinner parties. Now, depending on the guest list, some of that may be, let's just be fair, depending on who's on the guest list, that may be legit, but it gets worse. Here's one, all you uh, young people in math, arithmophobia. This is the fear of numbers. That's a clinically diagnosed, that's just a kid trying to get out of algebra, I think. But, um, and then there's selenophobia. This is the fear of the moon. There is, how about this one? <laughs> this is awesome. Um, Allodoxophobia. You know what that is? Fear of opinions. I'm starting to get that one lately. I don't know about you guys. This political season, I think I feel that coming on. But here's one. Genuphobia. This is the fear of knees. I'm wearing jeans for whoever you are out there. I just, I helped you with that. Um, Octophobia is the fear of the figure eight. The actual figure eight strikes fear into you. I was talking to Aaron about that earlier. He was like, well, it never ends. It just never ends. I'm like, oh, maybe, maybe that's what it is. <laughs> Pray for him. Um, scriptophobia. This, scriptophobia is the fear of writing in public. 
So you're paying with card, not check, apparently, if you have scriptophobia. This one's not even fair. Okay, this one's so not fair right here. Sesquipelbalbalphobia. You know what that is? It's the fear of long words. (laughs) That's totally unfair. That you would name, I'm diagnosing you with this. Ah! It's so unfair. So unfair. Here's a acerophobia. That is the fear of sourness. So you're not getting lemon in your iced tea. There is <laughs> aloof, aloof, I don't know what that is, phobia. It's the fear of flutes. The fear of flutes. I, I had a bad trip at a Jethro Toll concert, I guess, something like that. And then there's this one, and this one is probably very real right now. Homilophobia. You know what this is? It's the fear of sermons. <laughs> I apologize. I apologize in advance. Now, those are fears that I, I don't mean to make light of anyone if they have any of those things. Well, I guess I did kind of mean to make light, but maybe I shouldn't have. But, but there are real things that we have common. Like those are rare. There are common fears that everybody has. Here's the top things in the United States that polls show people in America are afraid of. Number one, public speaking. Number two, heights. Number three, snakes. Number four, spiders. Should have been number one. Number five, drowning. Number six, needles. Number seven, claustrophobia. Number eight, this is a real one, flying. Number nine, strangers. Number 10, zombies. (laughs) Made the list. Number 11, darkness. Number 12, clowns. And then number 11, ghosts. Ooh, Casper, all that kind of stuff. Now, what Paul's going to be talking about here as we're moving into this text here, this idea of fear, is not so much these things. Though I I think the principles that we're going to be talking about here absolutely apply. But odds are, even if those are things that you're afraid of, they're, they're probably not going to affect you on a normal day-to-day basis, right? I mean, maybe if you're fear of flying and you've got to go somewhere, it comes up, but then for the rest of the time, you're fine. Fear of snakes, you're fine until you see one. You know, those sorts of things. I, though the, I think the principles would apply, that's not necessarily the kind of thing that Paul's talking about here. So if that doesn't, doesn't connect with you, maybe this does. How many of you ever wrestled with what we'd refer to as anxiety? Anxiety, the definition of anxiety is this, a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. And and what tends to at least clinically define something as anxiety is when it moves from just a regular fear like clowns or whatever, but into a type of fear that actually affects, um, it becomes a disorder when it affects the way that you live your life. So you have difficulty eating or sleeping or relating or things that a normal existence would probably just come naturally, just be part of your life, suddenly become a challenge to you. And that I know a lot of people wrestle with. Um, It's the number one most common diagnosed mental health issue in the United States today. Now, one of the reasons we don't like to talk about our own anxiety issues is because it gets labeled as mental health issues, and that's a taboo subject still in many circles. 
But I've talked to enough of you to know there's a ton of anxiety in this room right now. And, and, and here, here's how big it is. Anxiety disorders cost the U.S. More, to, more than $42 billion a year, almost one-third of the nation's $148 billion mental health bill. So we don't want to call it mental health. We don't want to think of one of those kinds of things, but it's actually costing our nation one-third of the total dollars spent on mental illness, anxiety. People who suffer from anxiety commonly suffer from physical illnesses and other illnesses associated with anxiety, such as depression, bipolar disorder, eating disorders, headaches, stomach issues, sleep disorders, substance abuse, adult ADHD, chronic pain, fibromyalgia, high blood pressure, ulcers, and other stress-related disorders. Touched on a lot of toes, stepped on a lot of toes, even mentioned in that list in this room. One in eight children suffer from high anxiety, making them much more likely to struggle with depression, poor performance at school, avoidance of important social experiences, substance abuse, and more. Fear and anxiety is real. I know it because I wrestle with it constantly. Depression, I understand from a other side of the counseling table, if you will, position. I've studied depression. I've had friends with depression. I've learned a lot and read a lot, and I understand depression. But I don't understand depression from an experiential way. I absolutely understand anxiety. It's a weird thing last night to be taking Tylenol PM because I'm experiencing, and I mean this sincerely, anxiety over the fact that I'm tomorrow going to preach on anxiety. That's where I'm at. Like I've, I've, I've wrestled with that many, many times. And anxiety, and it comes from a lot of different places. There's a lot that you can learn about yourself as you're understanding anxiety if you really stop to think about it. A lot of fear and anxiety is over desires that have not yet been fulfilled in your life. That's the source of a lot of it. So a lot of anxiety is, I want to be married, but I'm afraid I will be alone forever. And you get riddled with anxiety over that. Others might, I need a job, and you have this anxiety over, it's a desire you have that's not yet fulfilled. I'm looking for this home, this job, this child, this whatever the case may be, and it can riddle us. And we're talking, you know that feeling, like that feeling where when the thought comes into your mind, you feel it right there. That feeling like you're on a roller coaster and your stomach just dropped. That feeling where you're like, <sighs> having to take a deep breath once in a while because you just feel constricted. That's what we're talking about here. Um, another cause of anxiety, if it's not things that we want that we don't have, sometimes anxiety be, can be caused by things that we have, but we're scared to death to lose. So just think about how cruel Satan and sin and the fall is. I'm riddled with anxiety. I want a husband so bad. I want a wife so bad. I want that family so bad. And then you get it, and then you can experience anxiety. I don't want to lose that husband. I don't want to lose that wife. I don't want to lose those child, children. And it just gets you both ways. Our jobs, I don't want to lose my job, my home, economic issues, worry, money. So anxiety can come from desires that are not yet fulfilled. Anxiety can come from things you have that you're afraid to lose. And then anxiety can come from things that you get that you never wanted in the first place. Like cancer, divorce, abandoned, abuse, Things like that, things you never wanted that happened to you and now plague you, that you feel like you just can't get out from under it. But the thing about those kind of fears, anxieties and stuff, if you'll really take a minute for self-examination and think about them, anxiety and fear can really, can, it can show you what's really important in your life too. It's not really fun to look at, it might cause you even more anxiety, but anxiety can show you the importance that you have put 
on things in your life. Anxiety can, here's why. You don't fear losing something you don't care about. You only fear losing things you love. If you get a brand new car, and people double park those things, right? Nobody's double parking a hoopty. Do we still say hoopty? Is that still allowed? Do I need to translate that for anyone? Hoopty? Okay, junky car. But you know what I mean? Like, you just don't care anymore. It's all ragged. Remember when you first get those brand new tennis shoes? You're like walking all carefully everywhere you go. I've seen people get in fights because their shoes got scuffed. But six months later, you don't care. Those are the ones you throw on to go mow the lawn. Gets all the green all over them, all that. You just don't care. So anxiety can show you the things that you value. And the more, here's the, here's the trick of it too. It's so, it's so lame. The more you have, the more freedoms you have, or the more responsibilities you have, the, the more opportunities you have to experience that kind of fear and anxiety. Because like, no one in Uganda today has anxiety over whether they're going to be able to pay their internet bill tomorrow. They don't have that. It doesn't even cross their mind. And that's probably one of the reasons that here in America it is so prevalent. Because we have been blessed with a lot. Like you, can, you can fret the direction our nation's going all you want, but go travel to a third world country and come back and you'll still kiss the ground when you get off that plane. We've been given a lot. And so you get more opportunities, the more responsibilities, the more money. Some of the wealthiest people in this valley that I've met with and talked with have some of the greatest degrees of anxiety. And then the other thing about anxiety is this. We tend to face anxiety the most when we have elevated something to a level of importance that it was never designed to be at in the beginning. Especially when we elevate something to a level of importance above God. And this happens in a lot of different areas. So children. Are children a good thing? Some of you are not sure. <laughs> totally get that. No judgment. But the Bible says they're good, so we believe that in faith. Amen? Children are good. They're a gift from God. But children can cause anxiety if you elevate your kids and make your whole life revolve around them. Helicopter parents? Man, good luck with that. You can drive yourself insane. I've got to protect them from every danger. I've got to make sure nothing happens to them. There's sin and danger out there, and I've got to just hover around and guard and guard and guard. You can do that all you want, but do you understand no matter what, sooner or later, your children will leave? They will. There's a country song. If it comes on the radio, I have to change the channel every time because I will bawl in my car. That one, I loved her first, I think is what it's called. Some of you guys know that? With this guy singing to the husband of his daughter, and he's saying, just remember, I loved her first. When that comes on, I'm not joking, it wrecks me because I dread the day and the thought that my daughter will leave our home. It's, and those of you that have experienced that before, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They're going to leave. But we can drive ourselves so insane hovering around them that we miss the opportunities we have today. Relationships, look, your husband, wife, boyfriend, whatever it is, was never designed to fulfill you. Your relationships were designed to help you as you walk closer and closer to Jesus. That you might find your fulfillment in him. Oh, there's joy in our marriages, I would hope. Oh, there's joy in friendships and those things, I would hope. All of those things. But I can't put my hope in that. My wife isn't strong enough to stand up under the pressure of that. For me to tell her, I'm basing all my happiness on you. Don't mess up. I was tr I'm sorry, honey. I was trying to point randomly, and you, there, you're sitting right there. I'm sorry. That looked terrible. <laughs> but the, your husband 
If he's the greatest husband the world has ever seen, he will fail you and he will crumble under that kind of pressure. When you put, when you're stressing and you have that much anxiety over relationships, it shows you that you have elevated that relationship to an unhealthy place. Jobs, hey, we'll see in just a second. The curse promises, promises us that work's going to let us down and be difficult and cause sweat and difficulty. And money, look, money is an amoral thing, but it, it, we can do good things with money, right? We feed the hungry with money. We put our kids to school with money. We do great things with money. But if you put all your hope in money, the Bible talks about no man can serve two masters. You're going to esteem money over God. If your anxiety is always over your finances, maybe it's showing you that you have put way too much emphasis on that. Well, here's the good thing. The Bible has a lot to say about fear and anxiety. It has much to say. And, and here's the good news. Those of you, and can I just ask, this is a safe place, okay? It's a safe place. Even this question might cause you anxiety, so if you don't answer, it's okay. But how many of us in this room would say, at least at some point in our life, our life has been shaped by some sort of fear and anxiety that has affected us? So it's a safe room. This is a safe place. And here's, what, here's the good news. The, the things the Bible has to say about fear and anxiety are not as condemning and shaming as you maybe want to think they are. In, in fact, the Bible knows you're going to have it. To that end, let's walk through this. I, I, I'm not here with that in Philippians 4 just yet, but I need to give you a little bit of a background on this because it's really important that we understand this. In Genesis 1, Verse 27, there's this, this picture of what God designed the world to be like. And you don't necessarily need to turn there. I'll read it to you, but you can if you'd like. Genesis 1, 27 through 31 says this. And I want you, as I'm reading this, I want you to think about what the world looks like here as we're talking about it, okay? It says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the bird of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on earth. That includes snakes, by the way. Like, the, hey, you are in charge. You're not fearing them. You have dominion over everything. Be blessed and fruitful and multiply. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, every tree with seed and its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps of the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning in the sixth day. This is referred to as the cultural mandate. Whenever people say, if you love, if, if God is real, then how could he let things happen? You can always go back to this and say, that's not what God designed us for. This is what God designed. This is what God's purpose and plan for our lives is to be. Fulfillment. I mean, imagine, imagine what that was like. You didn't have to worry about your kid climbing a tree and falling off and breaking his arm because it, there was no pain. None of those things. You didn't fear snakes. They wouldn't touch you. They ate grass. You didn't fear sharks. You didn't fear any of that kind of stuff. Your relationships with nature were in total harmony. Your relationship with one another was in total harmony. Your relationship with God is in total harmony. It's the Hebrew concept of shalom. 
everything is at peace. The thing people with anxiety are desperate for, peace. And everything was peaceful. And then Genesis 3 comes. And instead of trusting God's provision and God's direction, man ate of the tree, sinned against God. And so then what does life look like now? Listen to what it says in Genesis 3.16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you'll bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you will not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you will eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. And I want you to see the failures of what, the, the breakdown, the stresses and the anxieties that are already predicted right there. The first one, relational struggles. He says right away, Eve, your desire is going to be to rule over your husband. Your husband's going to rule over you. There's going to be these gender wars and strife that are going to happen. And look, this isn't God going, from now on I now curse you. This is already happening. It's, the, it's a result of the fall. Because when God comes, they're already doing it, aren't they? It's that woman you gave me's fault. Well, it's the snake's fault. There's finger pointing, there's division, there's separation, there's shame, there's covering one another up and hiding from one another. He's saying, look, there's going to be relational stress, relational difficulties, and relational tension because of the fall. Is that true still today? Amen. What else? How about societal struggles, if we can call it that? Adam, work's going to be hard. Before, you were subduing the earth and everything was going to be, going to just kind of go with you. But now things are going to fight against you. Work's going to get hard. Building things is going to get hard. Society is going to get hard. They're, as they, they build from this garden to the city, it's going to change. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be strife and anxieties. Life and work will be hard. Is work hard? Do people stress over work still today? Of course they do. Physical struggles. Adam, you're dust. And you're going to be returning to what? To dust. You're dying. You're breaking down. There's going to be constant tensions, fears, anxieties that are going to come with that. Suddenly we now fear death. And it wasn't even a thought before that. I think most everything that we could even come up with that we would wrestle with anxiety over can be found in one of those three categories. Relational issues, societal issues, physical issues and sin issues, of which all three are a product of. So, so from the very beginning, we see that fear and anxiety was, uh, was a given from the beginning. And in a certain sense, I, I'm hoping that's sort of freeing to you. So listen to me. For me, growing up, feeling like anxiety was something that made me a second-tier Christian, let me encourage you. Fear and anxiety is expected, predicted, it's part of the human experience because of the fall away from our relationship with God by sin. This is part of who we are. There's a reason that the Bible over and over and over, all through the scriptures, says things like, fear not, be of good courage, don't be afraid. Why do you think it says all that? Because we fear a lot, and we feel like we've got lots of reasons to be afraid, and we're not always of good courage. 
And we need to understand that the the origins of that come from the fact that we have fallen away from God's good design. And Christians of all people should have reason to fear because not only do we have all these effects going on with us like the rest of the world does, but once you're living for Christ, now you're at opposition with a completely different kingdom in this world. In which Jesus said what? In this world you will have trouble. Following me means dying to self. He said scary things that even the apostles were like, I don't know if I like the sound of that. Anyone who follows me is going to have to eat of my body and drink of my blood. And a lot of people are like, well, I'm out. How about you, Peter? I didn't like that either, but where else do I go? Only you have the words of life. So, so even, even in that, we need to understand. Let me put it this way. If you wrestle with fear and anxiety, the absolute worst thing you can possibly do is try to pretend that you don't. Stop lying to yourself. Stop lying to others. Stop trying to be strong. It will only increase your opportunities. And let me assure you, I get that. I understand that. Here's the funny thing. As many of you guys know, um, my wife and I adopted recently a five-year-old boy out of foster care. He's been with us now for about three months almost, something like that. And, And it's been hard. You talk to anyone that's adopted through things like that, and you're going to hear stories of all sorts of storms. And, and I was just telling some of my staff guys this week and my wife this week that, man, like, I have wrestled with anxiety lately to a, a, a little bit of an abnormal degree. It's that feeling right there that you just can't. And I find myself all the time just going, <sighs> sorry, not with that noise, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Like taking that deep breath because you just feel that pressure building up and you're just looking for that little bit of release. And I was talking to some of the guys this week and I was talking to Sam and I was like, man, you know what? I feel like I could just use a break, honestly. So uh, why don't you teach this week? And I'm going to see if I can find some place that we can go and some place that we can go do something and just kind of get away and just have a rest this week. And so Sam was like, all right, well, um, can you lead worship? Because I'm doing worship this week and Jeremy's at camp and Mitch is at camp and I'm not sure who we're going to get to do all this different kind of stuff. And then Sam was even like, man, I'll even, I'll just do worship and do the teaching. We'll do some scaled back stuff. And, but the, the reality of it, it just wasn't working out. Like everywhere I was looking, like, could we go here? Could I rent a cabin here? Could I do that? And it was either just stuff we couldn't afford or school was on Friday. So I had to go to Portland and I finally came to Sam and I was like, you know what, man, I'm trying. Nothing's just working out at all. So uh, just don't worry about it. I'll take some time off later on and I'll go ahead and teach this weekend having no, like not even in my conscience what I was going to end up being teaching about. And then I sit down to start studying and I'm like, oh, that's not funny. (laughs) And God's like, yeah, it is. It's a little funny. (laughs) So, So teaching you about how to deal with anxiety while I myself am dealing with anxiety has been a healthy and difficult thing to do even this very week. Like, I, I get it. When I was an engineer before, before I was a pastor, like, I, I was so stressed by the work that I would do. I've told you guys this before. I would go to, like, Albertsons or someplace, and you know those things where you put your arm in to check your blood pressure? Like, I'm in my 20s, and I'm going and checking that because I was scared to death because I felt this constant pressure right here. It wasn't easy. That was difficult. And you go, well, now, but you're just a pastor, Jeff. You just teach the Bible once a week. That's all you have to do for a job. How hard is that? I wish... But there's all sorts of stresses that I'll just be really honest with you about. Most pastors fear that they are always one sermon away from losing relationship with people that they love. That's true. 
Many pastors fear their one bad sermon, one conviction they believe God has given them to teach, one mess up away from losing all of it, from letting everyone down, from losing relationship with people that they love and have walked with. Every pastor I know has confessed that. It's not me just saying, please whine for me. It's just reality. And there's stresses like that in everyone else's jobs, right? All of us have those fears of failures, especially when economies make downturns and those kinds of things. Absolutely, there's difficulties with those things. We will all experience anxiety to some degree or another, fears at least, all of us. And some of us might wrestle with it on a disorder level. Some of us might wrestle with things in such a way that it's affecting your sleep, affecting your ability to relate, affecting the way you even breathe or the way that you interact with other people. Some of you in this room, I know from experience talking with you, you have to pep yourself up before you even walk out the door every day and convince yourself that it's going to be okay. I don't know what I did to the mic there, guys. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Thanks. Now I have more anxiety. We will wrestle with anxiety, but here's the beauty. God knows, and God is inviting us to bring that to him. Now, I want to show you just a couple of truths in the scriptures, one in Matthew chapter 6, and then we'll be in Philippians. In Matthew 6, and we have the text, we can put it up on the screen if you can read it. Listen to what Jesus says. Now, Jesus, a little background, he's the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he's been teaching the Beatitudes, blessed are you in this, blessed are you in this, blessed are you in this. And he's teaching them about being a light to the world. He's teaching them about kingdom living, what it looks like to live your life for others, not trusting in money, not being selfish, about loving one another and giving to one another and all these things. You're not going to worship money. You're not living for money. You're not living for any of these things anymore. And I wonder if he could see the faces of the people already and see some of that is this really what life's going to look like if I follow you? Because people that follow all the other rabbis around here, they're walking towards prestige. And the thing that you're telling me that I'm going to experience if I follow you sounds, sounds like I'm giving up a lot of my life that other people are actually gaining. And I, this is a paradigm buster for me, Jesus, because like I thought, following, even some of his apostles that are always thinking the kingdom's coming, so we're following the king, and we're going to have position and power, and he's always telling them, nope, it's not going to work out that way. And so perhaps he could see the faces of people going, okay, so what do I do? And look what he says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, or about your body, or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So Jesus is answering emotional fears with a truth. And here's what he says. Hey, are you afraid? Her heritage people that deal with anxiety and fears right now, that you have worries that you're wrestling with right now, let me tell you something. Let me ask you this. Is not your life more than food? Is not your life more than that job? Does not God have more involved and invested in you than the clothes that you're going to wear? That's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer that he's implying to this is what? Yeah, it is. Hey, you're worrying about your food. You're worrying about your clothing. You're worrying about all these things. But hold on. Your life's more than that. Those may be big things, but they're not everything. What else does he say? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And what's the answer to that? 
Yeah. Those, those birds, beautiful birds that we take photos of and artists do paintings of, they're not worried every morning about punching in and figuring out how they're going to get their food that day. Where do they get their food? God provides their food. He takes care of them. And if he's going to take care of a bird, is he not going to take care of you? And the answer is yes. It's a truth. It's God's, he's saying, hey, he's going to take care of you. He understands your needs. Look what else he says. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of those. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Key phrase, O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? And just to, to, to say the obvious, the point here isn't that on those three things, don't worry. Everything else you should worry. The idea is this, don't worry about anything. Food, drink, house, whatever. Don't worry about anything. This is what he's saying. For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. In other words, hey, those that are outside the family of God worry about that kind of stuff, but you're in the family of God, and he knows that you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. There's two things in that last sentence that we never, I never really hear talk about, but I, I, I believe I see them here. Number one, he's admitted that you're going to have anxieties. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Anxiety will be waiting on you there already. Don't worry about that. Don't pile tomorrow's anxieties on top of today's. Just wait. It's going to come. So I hope this is freeing to some of you. God has given you permission to deal with anxiety. He knows it's coming. He understands it's part of human ex experience. He's talking about it. It's not a sin that you feel it. But what are you going to do with it that he's talking about? And, and then the other thing is he says, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And this might be a word for some of you because we can get so caught up in the fears of the unknown down the road that we're missing out on the joys that we have today. There are parents that could be absolutely rolling in the joy of fellowship and, and everything with their kids as they are right now, but they're so paranoid about college, even though they're five, that they can't enjoy the, the five-year-old years right now because they're always worried about the next one. Don't worry about that. Be prudent. Be the ant that prepares for winter. All those things, of course. But look, don't take those fears on. God's blessing you. He's taking care of you. He's got his eye on you. He is with you. Don't let the fears of tomorrow pile up on top of those things. Here's the reality of the, this passage, what, he, what Jesus is trying to say here. God is in control. I, I love this quote by Abraham Kuyper. He's Dutch, by the way, so if you have Dutchophobia, this might be terrifying for you. But um, Abraham Kuyper says this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Think about that. There's not a square inch of all human existence that God, who is sovereign, that Christ, who is sovereign, does not say, mine. And, and let, me, let me use a Matt Chandler line on you here. Get rid of the notion that God just knows your future and adopt the notion that God is in it. He's outside of time. It's not something he knows. It's something that he's in. 
And there's not a square inch of our life today, tomorrow, or the next one, or the things that happened to us in the past that he's not present. God is in control and he's sovereign. But here's what's hard. We read this, hey, God's gonna take care. He knows what you need. He's gonna take care of all those things. But then we sit back and we go, yeah, but there's Christians that have starved to death, aren't there? And didn't Jesus say he'd take care of that? And there's Christians that are gonna die. There's homeless Christians. There's Christians that don't have that clothing. And so I understand all that. And in that moment, it's good. But then when I start thinking about the practicalities of my life, I'm worried that is Jesus just not there? Well, that's where Paul tells us in Philippians 4, please tell me that clock's not right. It's right. I just got more anxiety. (laughs) Philippians 4 says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The discipline that God has given us as a weapon against fear and anxiety is prayer. Something we don't do. Maybe that's a big problem right there. The weapon he's given us to combat fear and anxiety is prayer. But here's what's so awesome. It's not just any old prayer. It's supplication with thanksgiving. What is supplication? It means help. It's a child going to dad saying, help me. Because God has pity on us. He looks at us as a child. He understands our frame that we are but dust. And he looks at you and he's like, hey, come to me. You're struggling with fear? You're struggling with anxiety? Come to me. Come to you and say what? Ask me to help. I, I, I taught my son this week how to ride a bike for the first time. It was really interesting what was happening because we've only been in the house. He's only been in our house for about three months. And so we're teaching him how to ride a bike, and he's not yet learned how to trust me fully. You know what I mean? And here's just a hard, fast truth. Let me give you that. All fear and anxiety for the Christian is based in a failure to trust that God is good. Hear me again. All fear and anxiety for a Christian is based in a failure to trust that God is good. That whatever the outcome of what you're doing, God is good. That he has your best interests at heart. That he is sovereign over all. That he does know what we need. He does know what the future holds. And when we fear, we're not trusting in that. We're looking at the circumstances and we get consumed with fear. And so here's my son, and I'm trying to teach him how to ride a bike, and he's not done any of this stuff yet. He doesn't trust. He hasn't learned how to lean when you get too far one way. He hasn't figured any of that out. But on top of that, he still doesn't fully trust me as his father. And so we get out there, and I'm behind him. I've got the seat. He can't see it, but I have it. And I'm behind him and I'm holding it. I'm trying to walk with him and I'm telling him, dude, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. And I'm watching him and, and him and maybe it's just even the foster care part or whatever. I hope we're limited on things we can say and I'm always worried I'm saying too much. Maybe I am, but don't tell anybody. So, so for him in particular, fear is shutting him down. Like I can physically see him shutting down because of fear. And, and so here's what I ended up having to do. I, I came around in front of the bike 
And I got down in front of him, and I was like, hey, look at me. And he's looking down. He's got shame. He's worried he's disappointing me. He really is. He's afraid, but he's shutting down, and he doesn't even want to look down. I'm like, hey, buddy, look at me. Look at me. And he's like, he does this. He's, this is literally what he starts going. Like, I, I don't know. Fear, anxiety, f- afraid he's disappointing his dad. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, hey, 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 hey. And I lifting up his chin. God is the lifter of our head, isn't he? I lifted up his chin and I'm like, look at me. I'm your dad. I won't let you fall. Look at me. And we, I, like I kept saying it, so it was like eye contact. I had no idea the sermon was coming, so I'm not using my kid for sermon fodder, I swear. But I'm just looking, look at me. Look into my face. I won't let you fall. That's prayer. Prayer is about us looking into the face of our Father and being reminded that He won't let us fall. You have a good Father that is saying, ask for my help. I'm here. And then, oh, we don't even have time to go in to the next part, but then gratitude. Realizing like He is a good Father. I've got a lot to be thankful for. I may be struggling in this right now, but my goodness, look at the things that He's brought me through. When we can discipline ourselves through prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving to look into the eyes of the Father, I promise you there is a peace that will pass all understanding that God gives to you. I'm talking about a peace that has nothing to do with the situation that you're in, but a peace that has to do with the God that's in it with you. Now, I'm not overly, uh, I, I don't know what's the word, idealistic fully aware that I can preach this sermon to you right now. You can walk out of here, and by the time you get in your car and you're driving out of here, the anxiety can come back. But look, His mercies never, 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 ever, His love never fails you. So you go to Him again, and you go to Him again, and you go to Him again, and you go to Him again. The problem is, is that if you're like me, my mind, when anxiety and fear comes, I have to figure this out. And I go to work, which God already promised works hard. And so it's anxiety on anxiety, it's grief upon grief, and the whole time I've got this good father that just wants to lift my head and say, son, look at me. I won't let you fall. But God, it's cancer. And it's the kind that they can't fix. Look at me. Just trust me. Don't look at the waves. Look at me. I'm a good father. I won't let you fall. We're going to do, we're going to bring the lights down. And we're still going to be here for a few more minutes. And in a sense, I apologize for that. But in another sense, not at all. Because there's people here right now that are dying inside. And you need opportunity now to look into the face of your Father. To ask for help from the one who is the lifter of your head. So here's what I want us to do. Right now, I want you to take time to go before the Father and tell him. Hey, God, I'm struggling with trust. Oh, a story I wanted to get into, we just don't have time. The, the, the man who came to Jesus, his son, possessed by a spirit, struggling. The apostles are trying to help him. They can't do anything. The guy's struggling. Jesus, can you fix him? And what does Jesus say? All things are possible to those who believe. And then what's his response? I believe. Help my unbelief. You pretending to be strong is not fooling God. He knows. Go to him. He's lifting your head. He wants to hold you up. 
and pretending you're strong when you're not will not do you any good. So take that fear right now. Start praying right now, even as I'm talking. That fear and anxiety you've got, go to the Lord. It's funny how that even played out. The apostles go to Jesus. Why couldn't we fix him? And what does Jesus say? That one can only come out but by prayer. Take your fears to the Lord now and confess your fear to him. Confess your lack of belief. Ask dad for help. as you're praying, maybe your heart doesn't even trust that this is going to even do you any good. Confess that. Ask him for help. Ask him to help you trust that he is good. One of the ways by which we learn to trust in the goodness of God is in recognizing what he's already done for us. So take a moment now to just Regardless of what you're in now, wrestling with now, to thank him for what he's done. He's brought you this far. He's provided for you this far. He's spoken to you and led you and he has saved you. He's brought you out of that miry pit. He's, he's set you to walk in high places. He's forgiven you of your sin and adopted you into his family. Take opportunity now just to confess the goodness of God in your life. the good news, church. Proverbs 12, 25 says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. So let me give you a good word again. It's the same word we read this morning from Lamentations where Jeremiah is confessing his own fears and anxieties and miseries to God. And he says, but this I call to my mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. Isn't that what Paul's been saying? We're chasing Jesus, not stuff. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him and the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. God, right now in this room, there's people that are quietly waiting desperately for that salvation from different storms and seasons and circumstances of life. I'm one of them. And Lord, I ask on behalf of those who would join in me, Lord, would you heal us? Would you rescue us? Would you visit the affliction of your people? Would you move your hand and deliver us? But Lord, if, 
If there's something you're doing in it during this time, God, may you strengthen us by your mighty right hand and may we trust in your goodness. Lord, I confess the places that my trust in you has failed. And I beg of your mercy on my life that you might grace me and those joining with me in prayer with the ability to trust your goodness and to see your goodness, to be remembered of your goodness. Lord, I know that no one sermon, probably, though you could, but no one sermon's probably gonna fix the afflictions and anxiety of everyone here. But God, may it create a discipline in us to go to you, to look into the face of our good Father, to remember that you care for us, to know your plans for us are good and not evil, to give us a future and a hope. May we remember the things you've delivered us from and first and foremost, that you have delivered us from sin and bondage. And may we look forward to that day when we're set free from all the effects of sin, when we see you face to face and are made like you. But until that day, God, help my unbelief. And now church, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, church, listen, I'm saying rejoice. Stand and worship as if you've been set free from sin. Stand and worship as if the creator of heaven and earth truly is your father, wants to gaze into your face, wants you to gaze back into his, wants to lift your head. Because there's something about looking at Christ and putting him in that place of preeminence that helps us forget all the other junk we're dealing with anyway. They, they become so unimportant when we're looking into the face of God. So church, stand with me and rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice.